Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's uh, workshop, uh, Genomic Testing and Current Trends in the Treatment of Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as many lung cancer organizations as well, um, who've really um, partnered with us in making the program possible. And they actually um, have helped to spread the word about the program as well. And it really is because if you're interested in the program and they're getting helping us to get the word out to all of you about the program, we have over 435 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, France, India, Pakistan, Poland, New Zealand, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really are from all over the world. It's a bit of a global call, or quite a global call, actually. Now, today's program is supported by Bayer Oncology and Loxo Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, and uh, we thank them very much. And now we have wonderful speakers. I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Heather Wakeley. Dr. Wakeley is Professor of Medicine, Division of Oncology, Stanford Cancer Institute, Member of Thoracic Oncology, Faculty Director of Stanford Cancer Clinical Trials Office. Dr. Wakeley is going to be presenting an overview of the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer, the important role of genomics in lung cancer, genomic testing and molecular analysis before you begin treatment, and the role of precision medicine in targeted treatments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wakeley. Thank you, Carolyn. It's, it's wonderful to be on the call and to know we have uh, so many people calling in. So the um, treatment of lung cancer has really been changing dramatically. I think every time I go to a conference, which is multiple times a year, there is something new. Uh, so it's really a, a time of great hope for people living with lung cancer. Now, I've been asked to talk about an overview of treatment of lung cancer and then really talk about the role of genomics in lung cancer. So um, I want to emphasize I'm going to be really focusing mostly on the treatment of advanced stage lung cancer, and we can talk a little bit about how does that translate into people who are diagnosed at earlier stages, but for now really kind of focus on the advanced stage. And when I meet a new patient who comes to see me and they've been recently diagnosed with uh, advanced stage lung cancer, we talk about the fact that there are really three main types of treatment. Um, the one that's been around the longest and still is a really important part of treatment for almost all patients at some point is chemotherapy. And I always talk about that first because it, it is still a really important part of treatment, and it's one that I think most people have a big fear of. Uh, sometimes that's based on personal experience or experience with a loved one, but a lot of times it's just it's fear that's based on sort of the, the public perception and the media perception of chemotherapy. And so I really I try to um, 
de-demonize uh, chemotherapy when I talk with folks because chemotherapy really can play a big role and be important. And most of the time, the, the side effects of the chemotherapy are much less than what people anticipate, and the benefit is much more. I'm not going to talk a lot about chemotherapy today otherwise, but just to say that Chemotherapy really does still play an important role, so don't be afraid of talking to your care team about chemotherapy and when that might come into play to help um, with our ultimate goal of helping everybody with lung cancer live as long as possible, feeling as well as possible. Now, what I am going to focus more on is one of the other types of treatment, and that's the targeted treatments. And we really started thinking about targeted treatment in lung cancer um, a little over 15 years ago with the recognition of, of a class of drugs that get something called EGFR, or the epidermal growth factor receptor. I'll take a, a side step backwards a little bit here and just say that chemotherapy is targeted as well. Chemotherapy is targeted these are all medications that do something to change the way new DNA is being made, um, and that by doing that, they're kind of focusing more on the tumor. The quote-unquote targeted medications are focusing on a specific gene problem that's within a tumor. So we've known forever that cancer is caused by a gene change that leads to a cell growing abnormally. Um, and that can be a single gene change or it can be lots of different genes that have changed. When those genes have a problem, they make a new protein and that protein changes the way the cells grow and that's really what causes a cancer. Um, and we've known for many, many years about a lot of different things, things called P53, and there are many, many other genes, but we just sort of knew they existed. We knew that that's one of the things we saw in cancer, but we didn't know what we could do about it. But then about 15 years ago, scientists recognized that many people with lung cancer had high levels of a protein called EGFR. And so a pills pill drugs were developed that um, were really focused on EGFR because that protein really only tends to be an issue in lung and in the skin and not in a lot of other places. And so these pill drugs were developed that hit EGFR, and when people took them who had lung cancer, uh, people noticed that about 10% of those patients, their tumor shrunk really fast, and the patients with um, in that setting felt a lot better. But for other people, it didn't really seem to do a whole lot of good. So scientists went back and studied the tumors of those patients where the drug worked versus those that didn't and realized that when the drug was working, it was because there was a mutation in the EGFR gene that led to a, a changed EGFR protein in the tumors of the patients where the drugs were working, but not in everybody else. And so a lot of testing later, we realized that about 10% of all people with the adenocarcinoma type of lung cancer the reason they have it is because uh, a gene in the cell in their lung got a mutation, which led to this abnormal EGFR protein, which then was what kind of drove the cancer to existence. And all of the cancer cells then have that mutated form of EGFR, and normal tissue doesn't. Um, and that was a really important discovery because it helped us to figure out, well, which patients should get this EGFR pill um, versus starting with chemotherapy. And it also got us to think about the fact, well, hey, if this is happening in about 10% with this EGFR gene, maybe there are others. And in fact, the, fact, the truth is that for more than half of the adenocarcinoma type of lung cancer, as well as for some of the people with a squamous cell tumor, if we look, we can find a specific gene that has a mutation that's led to an altered protein, which is really the driving force behind the cancer. And when we figure that out, 
for many of those genes that have been altered and those altered proteins, we now have targeted pill drugs. So that's a lot to talk about. So I'm going to back up and just sort of summarize and just say that when someone's developed a cancer, a lung cancer, especially if it's the adenocarcinoma type, but for some of the squamous, if we do gene testing on the tumor, we can many times find a specific gene that's been altered that is really what's kind of causing the cancer. Over time, other mutations happen, the tumor gets more complex, but that primary root one is still there. When we figure it out, then we can change treatment by giving people these pill drugs. So with EGFR, and that's still the most common of these where we can act on it, there are now five drugs approved in the United States. So there's gefitinib and erlotinib and afatinib and dacomitinib, which just got approved this year, and then osimertinib. And we, uh, they're all like different, what we call um, classes. So there's the, the first times that were developed, the EGFR and um, the erlotinib and gefitinib, and then the second class, which is the afatinib and dacomitinib, then the third class. Um, and we can either sequence them or start with one of those drugs and really have a profound benefit for the patient who's, who has that EGFR mutation. But that's not the whole story. So we also have others that we can look at. And so there, the next one that was found was something called ALK, A-L-K, and that was just discovered a decade ago. Um, scientists recognize that in maybe about 5% of lung cancers, we can find that ALK, um, translocation or mutation, and when we do, we can best treat patients with that kind of lung cancer with targeted pill drugs. And there are also now five drugs approved in the U.S. that target ALK, so lots of options. And in the setting where we find either EGFR or ALK, we know that it's best to start with a targeted pill and save the chemotherapy for later, so very exciting. And it keeps getting more and more interesting and helpful for more patients as we can identify more of these uh, gene mutations. So. The genes that we think about looking for, there's one called MET and HER2 and ROS1 and BRAF and NTREC and RET. Um, so, and the, the list keeps growing and growing as we are better able to test for specific gene mutations. And when we identify them, now have specific pill drugs that people can take to help control their cancer and minimize side effects and keep the cancer under control. So it's very exciting. Um, I think that if I started listing off all of the different medications that have been developed in the last 10 years, it would be pretty overwhelming for all the listeners. So I'm not going to try to go through each and every one of those, but I do want the listeners to be aware that we're no longer thinking about just looking for EGFR or just looking for ALK, that and really to best treat an individual cancer, we need to be looking at at least 10 different genes and probably more so that we can best understand the tumor and we can offer all of the potential best treatments for a patient living with that cancer. So I, I wanted to kind of shift gears again now. So we've talked about chemo, um, and there are many different chemotherapy drugs, and that chemotherapy can play a role for a lot of people. I want to then have talked about these targeted medications, which involve targeting specific gene mutations when we can identify those gene mutations. The third type of treatment, um, which we're not going to focus on as much in our discussion today because it's been covered in, in some of the other cancer care calls, are these newer immune therapy drugs. And I'm just going to mention that with immune therapy, those, those drugs um, can play a very big role for many patients living with lung cancer as well, squamous and the adenocarcinomas and other types. But they tend to be a 
different group of patients benefiting more from those compared to the patients who benefit from the targeted pills. So when we're testing a tumor, we're looking for these gene mutations. We're also looking for some indications of whether or not immune therapy might be better. But in general, the patients that have these specific gene mutations, these driver mutations where the pill drugs work, those patients are better off treated with the targeted treatments and then with chemotherapy and not as often with the immune therapy. The immune therapy can please pull, later play a role and is important, but we wouldn't give it first. We would start with the targeted medications and then later think about the immune therapy and maybe thinking about giving those immune therapy drugs with chemo as opposed to alone. And there's a lot of research being done as to what's the best way to sequence that. But just to let people know that when we find these specific gene mutations, for most of them, the targeted treatments are going to be the way to start, and then we think about chemo, and then later about immune therapy. When we don't find any of those specific targets, then we have immune therapy as a better option for patients, either alone or in combination with chemotherapy. And so when we're thinking about how do we best treat non-small cell lung cancer, when I have a new patient, like I mentioned, these are the things running through my head that I'm talking about with them, that we're trying to figure out what's the best step forward. And in order to know that best step forward, we need to know more about the tumor. And we need to know about what genes are mutated, which ones are, are causing the problem. We need to know about some of these immune markers, such as pdl one and some others. But again, we're not going to focus on that so much today. And then we talk through, well, of the chemo choices, of the targeted treatments, of the immune therapy, what makes the most sense to start with, and then what are we going to be able to look at later down the road um, as options. And for almost all patients, there will be chemo at some point. For most patients, there will be immune therapy at some point. And for some patients, close to half with the um, non-squamous type, will be thinking about some sort of targeted agent. And the list of medications just keeps growing. And so, it's, again, as I mentioned before, it's really um, exciting and hopeful time for people living with lung cancer because we have so many options. And it's just really important to, to take the time with your care team to talk through, well, what do we know about my tumor? Um, what are going to be the best treatment options? Have we done the testing we need to do to really understand everything? And then how do we move forward with picking the right treatment right now, thinking about the right treatment next, um, and also how we might be able to fit in, in clinical trials? Because for a lot of patients, uh, there are going to be some very good options available through studies as well. Um, and so with that, I'm going to stop and uh, turn this over to Dr. Lee. Uh, we are going to be able to have a lot of time for questions and answers afterwards, and so I want to make sure everyone gets a chance to hear what he has to say, and then we can come back and answer a lot of specific questions. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Wakeley. That was wonderful. It's just a wonderful introduction to the whole topic here today and just so much content. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so just wonderful. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Bob Lee. Dr. Lee is attending medical oncologist, thoracic oncology service, developmental therapeutics center, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lee will be addressing specific examples of how genomic testing directs treatment decisions for non-small cell lung cancer, communicating with the healthcare team about genomic testing to guide your treatment options, tips to manage common treatment side effects, and what's promising in the future for non-small cell lung cancer. So now it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you, Cancer Care, uh, for this opportunity to share with you uh, some of my uh, uh, learnings on 
uh, genomics testing and the treatment of uh, non-small cell lung cancers. Just following the uh, excellent overview uh, from Dr. Wakeley, I will provide a few examples of patients in my practice who have benefited from genomic testing uh, to guide their treatments. I recall uh, one of my dear patients uh, is, is a, a gentleman in his uh, 30s, is a young guy who uh, very previously fit and well with no medical history whatsoever, uh, but uh, had suddenly gotten ill. I thought it was a virus to begin with, but then lost 40 pounds and uh, was really barely getting out of bed. Uh, he was having fevers and night sweats and uh, really didn't know what was going on. Uh, scans and biopsies show that he had advanced cancer, and the biopsy finding was inconclusive, a lot of necrotic tissue. Uh, we, uh, the pathologist didn't know where the exact primary cancer came from. It could be colorectal, it could be lung cancer, but he had cancer metastasis everywhere. And uh, this patient came to see me as a second opinion. He was actually due to start his uh, chemotherapy for colorectal cancer. And uh, uh, so when we met, uh, uh, I had ordered a liquid biopsy uh, on this gentleman from uh, tubal blood. And by sequencing the plasma cell-free DNA, uh, from the blood test, within days, we had identified a outfusion, an outfusion on the blood test. And this is the oncogene that Dr. Wakeley had um, explained earlier on, that we now have multiple targeted therapies uh, approved uh, for this particular condition. So this outfusion on the blood test, uh, as a result of genomic testing, uh, had actually not only uh, clinched the diagnosis of advanced lung cancer, which Dr. Wakeley explained it's 5% uh, of non-small cell lung cancers, and also provided a guide for precision therapy. So he canceled his chemotherapy, um, and I ordered a targeted drug called electinib in, this, in his case. So within days... He started this pill and then immediately felt better. And subsequently, scans have shown a dramatic shrinkage of his cancers everywhere, including the brain, his bone, his spine, his adrenals, etc. So uh, to this day, this was about just over a year ago, and to this day, he remained on the pill and uh, is back to his work plays basketball, he's gained, regained his muscle um, and weight. Uh, so they're living a fairly normal life today on this targeted treatment. So this would not have happened without genomic testing. And in fact, if he had gone on uh, non-specific chemotherapy that was designed for colorectal cancer, uh, it would have been a very different outcome. Uh, another example uh, is also a gentleman uh, in his uh, 40s. Uh, he's got um, two young kids, a, a growing family, and had a busy life working, 
and then suddenly diagnosed with advanced stage uh, non-small cell lung cancer. In fact, he's had a, 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 a fairly a rarer type of tumor called large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma of the lung. Uh, he had undergone chemotherapy with initial response uh, of the tumor with shrinkage, but then pretty rapid progression after that, meaning tumor had grown and he started developing pretty bad cough with fluid collecting around his lungs, uh, what we call it pleural effusion, which needed drainage with a catheter. And uh, he became quite ill with adrenal metastasis and lymph node and brain metastasis. He underwent genomic testing as well, and this time was on a biopsy tissue. And uh, we did a test called next generation sequencing. Uh, and as Dr. Wakeley explained, we need, really need to do in this day and age a genetic test that not only covers one gene, but many, many genes, and in this case, hundreds of genes um, uh, through next generation sequencing. And through that, we were able to measure, estimate a um, tumor mutational burden, amount of mutations uh, in a region of DNA covered. In his case, he had 60, more than 60 mutations. And uh, because of that and the translational research um, and findings we had matched, we knew that those tumors may respond better to combination immunotherapy. So he, as a result of this genetic testing, went on to, uh, I, I prescribed two, a two-drug combination called ipilimumab and nivolumab. And, and he had a dramatic response with shrinkage of all sites of his cancer and a marked improvement in his physical status, his back to the gym, running treadmill and lifting weights. And uh, that was two years ago. To this day, he remains on immunotherapy. And uh, we hope uh, that this would be a, a long-lasting response, that he could go back to his, uh, he would continue his normal life. So again, this is a, uh, a treatment that was guided from genetic testing uh, and just really demonstrating the value of such testing. So I would encourage patients and their families to talk to uh, their lung cancer doctors, the treating oncologists, about doing genetic testing to help guide treatment. Genetic testing is not always possible uh, because sometimes the tumor biopsy tissue is not sufficient. It may not be big enough uh, to, uh, to complete uh, extended next-generation sequencing. So sometimes a re-biopsy, a repeat biopsy, tissue biopsy may be necessary in order to get it done. But I would say if it wasn't done in the first place, it is certainly worthwhile pursuing a repeat biopsy to get those this sort of information that might help. And in sometimes, as my patients, the two patients have illustrated, could really be life-changing in terms of treatment outcomes. So it's worth doing. And there's also the, with new technological advances in genetic sequencing, we are now conducting liquid biopsies. And this is still a, 
uh, a science that keeps evolving with improved technologies and, and its uses in clinical practice. But uh, this is certainly an option that's becoming available in the clinic. And by taking tubes of blood, we could map out the cancer genome just lo looking at those tiny fragments of DNA shed by the tumor into the bloodstream. So uh, sequencing, the next generation sequencing of plasma cell-free DNA is, is now available. Um, and this can be done as a supplement to tissue-based biopsy uh, sequencing. In terms of targeted treatment, uh, while they really could be magic bullets uh, for the treatment of lung cancers uh, in those particular subsets of patients and tumors, they can also come with a range of potential side effects. The common ones, especially the EGFR uh, inhibitors, can cause rash of the skin, uh, diarrhea, uh, and sometimes irritation around the nails. Uh, it could also cause mouth ulcers uh, and dry skin. Uh, and uh, so essentially the skin and the gut are the um, most common sites of side effects. And that's also because EGFR, epidermal growth factor receptors, are expressed in in those uh, in these two organs, this is the gut and the skin. So by hitting EGFR, um, you could get side effects in those areas. Uh, fortunately, there are very good strategies to manage those common side effects. So with rash, there are topical treatments. With uh, in, uh, in, uh, in my practice, apomethasone cream, which contains a steroid, could be very effective for the breakouts of uh, rash especially acne form rash. Sometimes the use of uh, antibiotics, topical antibiotics, could be helpful as well uh, for those angry acne form rash. And um, uh, if it gets very severe, then oral antibiotics uh, are sometimes used uh, as well. In terms of diarrhea, uh, a simple anti-diarrheal medicine such as loperamide could be used. Uh, can count, could be used very successfully to counter its effects. Um, and there are a range of other um, potential side effects based on which precision therapies we're talking about. So when we talk about ALK, if we're talking about crizotinib, which is the, the common uh, medicine that, that patients go on to, uh, the gut side effects, in special, uh, such as nausea, vomiting, can be managed with medications. Uh, sometimes the legs can swell up uh, with fluid retention. So leg elevation, compression stockings are some of the simple measures that could be used to, to uh, alleviate those side effects. But fortunately, most uh, of those drugs are, are generally well tolerated uh, compared to uh, better tolerated compared to standard chemotherapy. So, um, uh, and, and, and again, communicating with the healthcare team, including the treating oncologist, and, uh, and very importantly to the practice nurse uh, can make a huge difference. In my practice, my nurse uh, is very proactively manages those um, side effects with patients. It's a very good effect. So what's promising in the future 
of genetics testing and and um, and non-small cell lung cancer treatment. I, I mentioned that liquid biopsy is one of those uh, scientific, those technological tools uh, that we are beginning to use in clinic, and this is certainly a promising science for the future. I believe the the science needs to evolve. Um, the technology is not 100% in terms of sensitivity in detection. Uh, often uh, doing a blood test for circulating tumor DNA or cell-free DNA picks up the cancer in about 60-70% of cases. In some studies have shown maybe 70-80% cases, but not 100%, even in the setting of advanced metastatic disease. And uh, so... And, and yet the studies have shown that this, this test is highly specific uh, when it's positive for one of those oncogenic drivers that could guide therapies. So an experience from Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, in a study we conducted uh, from 210 patients is currently, the paper is currently in press at Journal of uh, National Cancer Institute coming out in a few weeks, and this in this study that we also presented at the World Lung uh, Conference uh, a year ago, we we showed that the once you have a positive finding, you can really guide the patient to the to uh, precision treatment without waiting for a tissue biopsy, and render a treatment response and clinical benefit for the patient based on that blood test. It's highly specific, yet if it's negative um, because of its modest sensitivity, you would still need to go on to do a tissue biopsy because sometimes you can have a tumor and an oncogene that's not shed, that's not shedding DNA into the circulation or at least sufficient concentrations for current technologies to pick it up. So if it's negative, one would still need to do the, um, the tumor biopsy. Uh, so this is not a replacement for, for tumor tissue biopsy, but a nice supplement uh, uh, as a tool. Hopefully, the, the technology in genetic sequencing will continue to improve, that we would have newer, improved assays that could be ultra-sensitive in detecting uh, cancers at an earlier stage even uh, that could really dramatic, dra uh, radically change our precision therapy for lung cancer. But uh, that's, that's certainly what I hope for the future. And, and um, uh, But uh, for now, uh, please communicate with your uh, treating team, your oncologist, your nurse, uh, and the practice team about the use of uh, genetic testing to guide treatment. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Lee. That was really outstanding, and thank you very much. Um, and a lot to be able to think about and to actually have questions for. We're going to take questions in just a few minutes, so please do prepare your questions, and um, we're, we're on standby to take your questions. Um, I just want to say a few words about the services you can access from Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we do provide psychosocial support and kind of a, a, a a long word to say that you have someone to talk to who's professionally trained, oncology social workers, to listen to your concerns or your um, or things that you might need. Um, and so, and you can contact us by phone, or you can uh, visit us. Um, you can talk to us online on the website. Um, um, 
and for people internationally, you can also contact us um, via the website or online as well. We offer the chance to talk to someone just one-on-one. -on -one. We also have programs um, in groups. We have lots of support groups, both on the telephone and online. So online support groups are very popular for people uh, throughout the country just because they are not time-specific. And so to some extent, you can talk with someone at any time of the day or night. You can email them any time of the day or night. Um, the telephone support groups are at a specific time. And I must say for, for both people in the U.S. in different time zones and people internationally, both the telephone and the online support groups are very popular, um, I must say. And we do at the current time have over 138 on, online support groups. And those are groups for people living with lung cancer, people who are caregivers, um, people who might be young adults who are caregivers, um, people who might be um, family members who are caring for someone with lung cancer. So all of the above and more um, uh, groups for people who are older persons with lung cancer. So it's really groups all different types of people and populations that we provide services for. Um, and um, we also offer these workshops and publications, of course, materials that you can access from our website. Um, and um, that pretty much covers everything. We do also offer practical and financial assistance to people. And um, our staff are very uh, well versed in what we can offer to you from both cancer care and also what is available to you both in the U.S. and also for international participants as well. So it is um, a very good resource to contact um, in addition to perhaps your healthcare team. Um, they also may know of these resources as well. So with that being said, um, we now do have time for questions. And we have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to um, have Crystal explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your questions at the very end, I'm going to explain to you how to get your questions answered. Okay, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star 1 to ask a question. Okay, we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, I'll start this one with Dr. Wakeley. Um, should genomic testing be done periodically as progression occurs in addition to an initial test? So that's a great question. Um, so we most highly recommend the testing early on, right when the person is newly diagnosed, to make sure that we pick first treatment as the best treatment that we can possibly choose. Um, but it can be very helpful to get additional testing at the time of progression. I get questions sometimes about, well, should we be doing testing regularly, just like we're getting scans regularly to sort of track what's going on? And I would say no to that because we don't know that that's really going to help us best manage the treatment and make those decisions about making changes in therapy. We still really rely on the scans and, and really the symptoms of the person to help us decide when is it time to switch to something different. But when it's apparent on scans or symptoms that it is time to switch to something different, it is useful for some patients to get that additional molecular information. So with eGFR, we are understanding a lot about why specific eGFR treatments stop working. 
Um, if someone's on one of those earlier, older drugs, uh, what we call the first or second generation drugs, we know that there's very specific new mutations that can happen in EGFR um, that if we find them can change what we're able to offer people next. And I don't want to go into too much detail because that's going to be specific just for some folks and not everybody on the call, but it can be really, really helpful, especially with EGFR. And it's also very helpful with ALK because when the ALK protein becomes resistant, when the gene be, um, that leads to the protein starts changing, some of the time it changes in a way where we know that specific other ALK drugs are going to work where the first one wasn't. And so that's very helpful. For some of the other, some of the other reasons we might check is that when um, the initial EGFR and ALK drugs stop working, sometimes the tumor changes in a way where it now becomes sensitive to different types of treatments, like for BRAF or for MET or um, MEC. And so those are all um, reasons to get repeat uh, testing. And as Dr. Lee talked about, the testing doesn't always have to be a tissue test from the biopsy. Um, it can also sometimes be these liquid tests. And the liquid biopsies, as they're called, are looking for tumor DNA that's being shed into the blood. So when we uh, find that, we're able to run all the molecular tests on the blood, and then we can spare someone having to get a biopsy. So long answer to a, a good and succinct question. And the answer is yes, sometimes. Uh, it is really helpful to repeat the molecular testing to see how the tumor is evolving, to see if that can help guide treatment. And we know much more about that for EGFR and ALK and a little bit for ROS1 than we do about some of the other genes. But as time evolves, uh, that list of where the answers can be helpful is going to expand as well. Excellent. Wow. Thank you. Thanks. I hope that's helpful and um, uh, excellent information. Thank you. And our uh, second question is for Dr. Lee. Um, have either have you treated a patient who has who has, has had or has EGFR and ALK concomitantly? If so, um, what was the treatment for that patient or those patients? Thank you. So this is a rare situation where we have two uh, distinct oncogenic drivers that are thought to be mutually exclusive um, and yet occurring at the same time. In my experience, this happens in um, patients with uh, two concurrent uh, primaries, so separate primary lung cancer, so two separate cancers occurring in the same patient. And this uh, has, I have had patients, uh, a couple patients with this um, dual driver situation uh, and in this case, you'll, one will have to treat both the EGFR and the ALK-driven cancers uh, separately. So it really depends on the stage of each cancers. So in my experience, we've had, I've had patients who have had an advanced stage EGFR uh, mutant lung cancer, yet the ALK fusion cancer is, is more of a, uh, a lower a lesser stage, an earlier stage, but the advanced metastatic cancer is, is the EGFR. So one would, in this case, I would have to treat the uh, ALK uh, on its own with local modalities such as radiation therapy, and then the EGFR with targeted EGFR inhibitors. This is where liquid biopsy could be helpful to find out the relative concentrations of those mutations in the blood, in the blood, to uh, 
and also to use it to monitor treatment uh, progress to see if those so-called variant little fractions can change over time with targeted therapies. Uh, so this is sort of one, one case examples of how this would be managed. Uh, and uh, I have not seen a single tumor, the same lung cancer harboring both, but I have seen it in the same patient who have had multiple synchronous, so-called synchronous primaries, uh, harboring an EGFR and another, cancer, another lung cancer harboring an ALK. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Carolyn. Can I? Uh, yeah. yeah. Can I yes. add to that too? Yeah, Please. because yes. I actually, yeah, I actually have seen um, a couple of patients where they their tumors did harbor both mutations at the same time, which is again very very rare. Um, especially because this was someone where it was fairly early on in her disease where we were able to identify both an EGFR mutation and an ALK translocation. In that patient, she her tumor was much more sensitive to the EGFR treatments and less so to the ALK treatments. Uh, I currently also have a patient who has a rare EGFR mutation but also we found when we did a liquid biopsy that she had a, an ALK translocation, but at a fairly low level. And it turned out that the ALK was probably not a driver, but was a small clone of cells that were resistant to the EGFR treatment that she had been getting. And as we're doing more of these multiple tests in patients over time, we're realizing that as much as we believe that as the sort of root driving force behind a cancer, we pretty much only get one of these mutations at a time. Once a tumor is being treated, especially with the targeted therapies, the resistance that develops sometimes involves mutations in other pathways. And so you can have a patient who has EGFR and they're getting treated with EGFR therapy and rarely when the cells become resistant, some of them have developed new mutations. We see it more with sort of BRAF and some of the others, but rarely with ALK also. So um, the way I think about it is when someone develops a tumor that's one of these driver mutation tumors, they're fairly simple tumors to begin with, meaning that there's really that one key mutation. But then over time with treatment, other mutations do develop, and, and that's why that multiple testing can be useful. I think that as Dr. Lee illustrated as well, it's also possible for someone to have two tumors. And when that happens, two separate cancers can certainly have arisen with different genetic mutations that have caused them. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and um, this is really very helpful to people, I think. Um, and um, we have a telephone question, um, Crystal. Thank you. Our first question comes from Audrey P. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, are liquid biopsies available at all cancer centers? I'm here in Atlanta and am wondering if they're available at all National Cancer Center Institutes. Well, thank you for that question. Um, uh, Dr. Wakeley, do you want to address that question? Well, sure. I, I can certainly speak to in Atlanta. I know Emory uh, definitely has some some fabulous uh, capacity there for doing all sorts of molecular testing, um, and I, I believe some of the other centers would as well. Um, so there are companies that offer the blood testing, the liquid biopsies, where pretty much any uh, oncologist anywhere in the country could arrange for that test to be drawn in a regular lab, and then the blood is shipped to the company. And so there are um, 
multiple different ones. So uh, garden health is one and foundation medicine is one and Keras is another. And uh, there's a huge list and uh, I don't want to have excluded any of the companies not doing that intentionally, but there are multiple different companies that are doing that. And so pretty much at any oncology office that can draw blood, you can get this done. And the way that works is that uh, the oncology office connects to the company. They send a kit, which is just a, it's basically a cardboard box that has a couple of blood tubes in it and some forms. The form is filled out. Uh, the person would go to the lab, get their blood drawn into these special tubes, and then that's all shipped out. And the results usually come back within a week or two. So it can be done anywhere at any time. Most of the larger academic centers are also developing their own testing methods, which are oftentimes we, we think better, not always necessarily. But um, so no matter where you are in the country, and especially if you're in a big um, area like in Atlanta, lots and lots of ways to get the testing done. Excellent. Thank you. Hope that helps. And um, thank you. And um, we have um, a question from one of our um, online participants. Um, and this um, is a question for Dr. Lee. Um, can I pass lung cancer onto my children? Thank you. So uh, uh, generally, um, we lung cancer is a rarely uh, familial uh, part of a familial syndrome. So this is not uh, routinely done, although there are some uh, cancer-causing mutations uh, in the germline. So this is the, uh, the genes uh, given by your mother and father. This is very, very rare uh, and, and, and certainly would require a genetics counseling um, uh, session uh, before you undertake uh, familial cancer testing, genetics testing for lung cancers. Uh, so uh, while it's possible, uh, this is not routine and uh, certainly not common in practice. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Um, Wakeley from one of our online participants. What is the longest documented progression-free survival and overall survival for a patient with EGFR mutation on Tarsiva? And again, this would be a uh, of course, each one would have to go back to your treating healthcare team, but perhaps Dr. Wakeley could give some just guidelines around this in terms of the um, effectiveness of Tarsiva or how it works. And, yeah, so um, you again, very, uh, very, in, very good question. I think it is very, we have to be careful not to look at what's happened to one person and then um, internalize that uh, for all the people listening on the call who might be living with the disease or um, know people living with the disease. When a patient asks me a question like that, I always try to frame it in um, in probabilities um, and talk about sort of where are we, where the best people can do, which is the specific question and what are things to be aware of. Um, because really no one can tell any individual with or without cancer how long they have left, right? And I think whenever we hear of people doing that, I always cringe because it, it's acting as if there's knowledge of the future, which one never has. I personally have several patients who have been living over a decade um, with EGFR mutated lung cancer who are on treatment. And I know everyone who has been in practice for a long period of time who treats a lot of lung cancer patients has similar stories. And so there certainly are people living and living for a very long time. And I can say the same of some of um, patients who have ALK lung cancer. And then even some where we don't even know um, what the mutation is that's driving their cancer. One of my um, patients I've been 
treating now for, I think she's at, uh, yeah, she just hit 10 years. She presented with metastases in her brain, um, and we treated her with chemotherapy, and eventually she was able to take a break, and she's now year four without any treatment at all, and her cancer is controlled. So, you know, miracles happen to some people. Um, and it tends to happen a little bit more when we know what these driver mutations are and have these driver um, mutation-specific medications. But the same can be said with some of the newer immune therapies and even with chemotherapy. And so there's just we don't always know what's going to happen, but there's reason to be very hopeful. Um, that being said, I also always um, coach people that it's important to be mindful that, you know, living with cancer does give you an opportunity to be really much more aware of living um, because you are having to live with this disease that could take your life. And then that's not to say that the person living with the cancer is going to be having a shorter life than anybody else who's in the room at the time we're having that conversation because unexpected things happen all the time. But when you're living with cancer, you're living with a disease that very well could be what takes your life. And so I encourage people to try to be more mindful of being alive um, and trying to adapt ways of, of living with that uncertainty of not knowing. Um, but to more specifically answer the question, it's decade plus. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we um, respond, and I hope that's helpful to our participant. And please go back to your treating healthcare team. And that's true for everybody on the call. Everything you hear today, of course, you take it back to the people who know you, treat you all the time, and, uh, and work with them on, on the information you've learned. Share it with them. Encourage them if they want to listen to the program. The program does exist, by the way, after it happens. It's available as a podcast. It will be up in about two days. You can listen to it again if you want to to see what you might have if listening to it again, you might hear something you didn't hear the first time around, so it's always good to know that's available and free, and it's also on telephone replay. And we now have another telephone question, so Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stuart W. Your line is open. Can you comment on, this is both for Dr. Wakeley and Dr. Lee, about uh, uh, new developments related to the ROS1 mutation that cause cancers? Thank you for that question. And Dr. Lee, do you want to go first with that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, so ROS1 uh, fusion is the, a genetic alteration that exists in about 1% of uh, non-small cell lung cancers. And the FDA-approved targeted drug for this is crizotinib. Now, the question is new development. So uh, what happens after crizotinib uh, stops working? So in this, uh, in this setting, uh, we are um, currently conducting clinical trials of new agents. One of the promising agents in this, in this, set, uh, in this setting is, is a drug called ropotrectinib, uh, uh, formerly known as TPX0005. The results were, were um, very preliminary results were published uh, by my colleague uh, Alex Drillin and others um, uh, from Memorial Sloan Kettering and other centers um, in cancer discovery uh, showing that this um, is is a new agent uh, that that could be effective and now we can uh, we're also conducting uh, further clinical trials the um, uh, uh, Alex Drillin also had a, um, a, a poster discussion session at ASCO this year showing preliminary efficacy. So this is a potential uh, 
uh, drug but although certainly we need more data this is very limited preliminary data so far um, and we certainly hope that this drug and others could eventually make it to the clinic uh, through more data and regulatory approval in the frontline setting, there are other drugs coming through apart from crizotinib. One of them is intrectinib, and that, this is also a drug that's uh, shown durable responses in the phase one clinical trial that's presented at World Lung Conference. So intrectinib could be an, uh, an alternative uh, agent in, in this setting, uh, in the first line setting, that is the, the first uh, line of defense for this uh, lung cancer. In a later line setting, uh, another drug uh, called lorlatinib uh, also has shown some promise in this setting. This, uh, this, uh, the phase one clinical trial was published in Lancet Oncology by uh, Dr. Alice Shaw from Massachusetts General Hospital and, and, and colleagues elsewhere. And uh, uh, early results had shown that this also is a drug that could salvage resistance uh, from crizotinib. So uh, those are the sort of agents in the uh, at the edge, um, and we hope to see many more uh, uh, you know, that will that'll come through to help improve patients' lives. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Wakeley, do you want to add anything? Or? Uh, yeah, just the, the the list keeps growing. So there's also um, seritinib and cabozantinib, and so. And I'll also mention that um, with ROS1, it's particularly chemosensitive to pemetrexid, and so I actually have a number of patients who had such fabulous responses to that chemotherapy that they're actually on a treatment holiday with no active disease. So we'll sometimes think about. Um, using the chemotherapy targeted radiation and then um, sometimes it's a very long disease-free interval and with some of my, I've got a, a few patients now who aren't on any treatment at all with no active disease when they had presented with metastatic disease. So uh, there are a lot of options with ROS1, which is it's uh, one of the ones we've had the most success with. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Thank you both. Um, it's wonderful to have these speakers on the call because we have, you get, you know, it's very rare that you ask a question and get two people to respond to it, and that's really amazing. So thank you. Thank you very much. And we have a question from another one of our online participants, um, and for Dr. Wakeley. What are the options in treatment in clinical trials for patients with T790M mutations when the GRESO is not effective? So that's a, a great question focused on EGFR. So I had talked a little bit about this, but essentially when, when someone is first diagnosed with lung cancer and we find an EGFR mutation, it's usually either um, an exon 19 deletion or a mutation called L858R. There's a few others that are less common that we look for, but those are the, the kind of the primary driver mutations. And when a patient is then treated with a uh, first or second generation EGFR drug, the resistance that usually happens is another EGFR mutation I'd mentioned briefly, but it, that is that T790M. So that's the most common resistance or new mutation in EGFR that happens after a patient has been on a first or second generation drug. And it was a long time before we knew what to do when we found T790M. 
But now we know we can use that um, osimertinib, which is also called Tegriso. That's a third-generation drug. Um, when that stops working, uh, usually the T790M, well, it can either stay there or not be there. They're different. There's a lot of different resistance that can happen. And, again, it's, it, it's, a, it's a huge long list, so I'm not going to rattle all of that off. But at that point, for most patients, it's then time to look into chemotherapy or there are some ongoing clinical trials trying to figure out other combinations with EGFR, but there aren't any single drugs that work after the osimertinib that are available at this time. Uh, the research is being done looking at how can we best use the chemotherapy, uh, how do we bring in immune therapy, maybe at that time with chemotherapy, maybe with chemotherapy and an anti-VEGF agent, maybe we add in an anti-VEGF agent with chemo. So there are many options, but we don't have a standard EGFR-targeted approach. Um, I'll also mention that things are changing. So instead of starting with those first and second generation drugs, which usually lead to eventual T790M development, um, we're often now starting first line with the osimertinib, the Tegriso medicine. And when we do that, the T790M never develops, but then other resistance mechanisms develop. And so we're trying to figure out what works there and how can we best combine drugs or work on new drugs. Those are the trials that are ongoing. Um, and also we then think about chemo and those same questions around immune therapy at that point. Excellent. Thank you. Dr. Lee, do you want to add anything? Oh, I completely agree with Dr. Wakeley. And uh, uh, yes, we ought not to forget chemotherapy in this setting that could work very well in those oncogene-driven uh, lung cancers. So when Togriso stops working, uh, chemotherapy is the standard of care. And, uh, and yes, uh, chemotherapy combinations with immunotherapy or, or uh, uh, anti-VEGF therapy uh, are both good options. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been extraordinary. Uh, this has been an amazing call, I have to say. Really exceptional. Um, I also want to thank our participants who asked really good questions and so gave us a chance to actually, uh, speakers, a chance to um, identify some of the concerns that you have. Now, I did say that I would certainly get to anyone who has not had a chance to ask a question, so I know that many of you still have questions. So, um, first, I don't want to in any way uh, circumvent your healthcare team. So, of course, your healthcare team, they know you the best. They have all your records and everything about you. So, I would definitely take your questions back to your healthcare team, even for those who asked a question today with the information you got, but also for people who still have questions. But I know many of you do like to check other resources, and so we'd like you to go to credible resources. So, when you get your evaluation at the end of today's program, it'll probably be tomorrow you'll get this. Um, evaluation. Um, the evaluation will have all the resources that we recommend. And the, of course, all of the lung cancer organizations are great groups to start with because they actually, the groups that have about four or five of them that partner with us today, and they have just wonderful patient information resources for you to access. Um, and also, um, I always give out the National Cancer Institute's information. Um, they have an 800 number, 1-800-422-6237, and you'll get that number, of course, um, in your evaluations. And they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, which is great for people in the U.S. and internationally as well because 
that website has a live chat feature where you can post your question and their information specialist will address it and give you all the information they have in their database about your questions. That's a, a great resource as well. Most importantly, we want, would not want any one of you to leave today's call feeling that you're alone, that you're all by yourself, that there's no one else to um, assist you or help you. Um, and, um, and so I want you to know that you're now part of this whole really community of support, both from Cancer Care and all the other organizations that are here to help you. Um, and um, certainly you may start by calling us or by emailing us at Cancer Care, and that information, all those informations are all over. You'll be getting all that information in your materials. Um, but also, um, I want to let you all know that um, sometimes when you're coping with lung cancer, any type of cancer, um, one feels a bit stressed out, actually. And particularly with the holidays coming and the, this time of the year, it seems to kind of really make people feel even more kind of, it, just, it causes a bit more stress for everybody. So we have developed Cancer Care Meditation app. It's free. And I would say um, it's on our website and take advantage of it. Um, it's a kind of a nice little tool to use. Um, and actually, many people find it helpful in dealing with stress. It provides some meditation and relaxation exercises for people. It can give you information. It can tell you about programs we've done in the past, um, new information. So I would take advantage of it in terms of just um, a, a kind of an, uh, an, an easy way to get information that might be helpful to you if you like apps and if that would be helpful to you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day. Please do um, look forward to the evaluation forms you'll be getting with all that information. And do call us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www cancercare.org. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.